Hey, what's going on, friend? Jeff Wallace here. Welcome to another episode of Chasing Elephants. Last week, Brent and I, we started a new series entitled, Thou Shall Not Be a Loser. And I know so many of you I love that, and we actually are going to pick it back up next week. But this week, what we want to do is we want to actually pause for a minute and give you an uh, opportunity to hear an incredible conversation between Brent and a good friend of ours, Dr. Darren Whitehead. Dr. Whitehead is a pastor of the church, uh, Church of the City, uh, there in Franklin, Tennessee. They actually have several campuses. He's also an incredible author and just a thought leader. And it's just an incredible conversation that we said, okay, um, our series is great. We thought this conversation would be great for you to hear. So uh, this week, we're excited that you get an opportunity to hear this conversation between Brent and Dr. Uh, Darren Whitehead. And then after that, next week, we'll pick up our series for part two of uh, Thou Should Not Be a Loser. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. I know I did. I enjoyed listening to it, and I hope you will as well. And so next week, we'll pick it back up. But right now, uh, you're going to hear from Dr. Darren Whitehead and Brent Crow. Gentlemen, take it away. Well, hey, guys. Uh, I'm so excited this week on the Chasing Elephants podcast. I get to talk to a gentleman that I look up to, that I consider a friend. He's a pastor. He's a church planner. Uh, he planted a church seven years ago called Church of the City in Nashville. Dr. Darren Whitehead. He's authored a couple books prior, but he's, he's got a new, a new project coming out. And as soon as I saw it posted, before I even had a chance to read it, I just knew it was going to be something that I wanted us to talk about. And so I've been uh, uh, able to get a, a, a little bit of an early release copy and dive into that content. And, uh, and so we're going to have a conversation with Pastor Dr. Darren Whitehead today. Darren, thank you for your time, buddy. Thanks for joining us. Dr. Crow, Yo. Brent, so so good to be with you, my friend. You know, you and I go back to student ministry days, brother. It's it's a uh, um, you know it's it's a lot of history, a lot of history. I remember when you had I, uh, first come over from Australia. Like within a year, you spoke at Youth Pastor Summit for the first time. Yeah, and I remember. Now we're going twenty years back, twenty plus years back. Excuse me, twenty five, whatever it is. And I remember you standing up there telling a story about your youth pastor shooting bunnies. <laughs> yes. Yes. I don't tell that story anymore. It doesn't age particularly well in 2024. No, it doesn't. No. It doesn't. no but no. Uh, back, back in the late 90s, or as my children say, the 1900s, mm. uh, that's, that, story really, that story really connected. <laughs> but man, I I'm so grateful. So you you you've served in a lot of different capacities. You were you were really a thought leader for student ministry for years. A lot of us looked up to you, learned from you. Um, you know, I'll be 20 years ago. I started the what's called the lift tour, and one of our first lift tours, you were there. And I remember mm-hmm. I remember bringing you in because at that point you were the student pastor at Willow Creek. And I remember you coming in, and I was apologizing to you because I didn't I couldn't afford all the production. And here you are, and I'm going. I got this guy coming. It's not. It's like nothing. What he's used to. And you just stopped me in the in the middle of the auditorium. You put my hand on my shoulder, and you went. None of this changed anybody's life ever. That's right. And we, and let's right. go do this conference. And you know, here 20 years later, and there's over 100,000 students that have attended that now. And so I'm grateful to you, buddy. And and uh, and then. No, yeah. No one 20 years later has gone, man. That lighting back in 99, like that was something. That was something else, man. Um, 
and then you, you planted Church of the City. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so we actually planted it 10 years ago. We just celebrated right. 10 year, our 10-year oh, okay. anniversary in uh, 2020, uh, 2013 is when we started. And, um, and so we celebrated 10 years, and uh, it has been an absolute dream. Um, two years into our story in 2015, uh, we had a church that I was a youth pastor at many, many years earlier, a church that you know of called the People's Church. And the elders of that church approached us and said, hey, our, our pastor of 33 years has, uh, has transitioned out of this role and we're looking for something new. Would you consider like merging our churches together? And, uh, and so we prayed about it. My initial thought was no, <laughs> but then we, we prayed about it and really sensed that God's hand was on that. And that was uh, eight years ago now. And God has really done something pretty extraordinary in, in bringing two churches together. In a time where you hear about church splits, right. this was a church merge, right. and the outcome has actually been really beautiful. It really has. It really has. And in Nashville, you, you kind of came to Nashville 10 years ago, for, forgive me for saying seven, but 10 years ago when you started this, was kind of that initial wave of Nashville exploding. And yeah, it actually slightly predated it, which was really interesting. So we moved in in 2012 and launched at Easter of 2013. And about 15 is when there was just this, I mean, it felt like everyone I knew, right. except you, Brent, moved to, to Nashville or to Franklin. And, you know, I mean, a thousand people that we both know from around the city, uh, from around the country, uh, on the coast or whatever moved to the, the Nashville area. And so, yeah, in God's, by God's grace, I mean, we kind of predated this wave and had no idea the people right. that God was going to send to us. And it, so, you've, you know, Nashville's become one of those cities, in the, and there's a, just a couple in the southeast that the, really the world wants to come to. And so it's, yeah, I know that's an that's incredible – I just can't imagine that. What an incredible ministry opportunity to have that just – you know, I live in a city where uh, it's oftentimes one of the top 10 most visited cities in the world, but it's for very different yeah. reasons uh, with yeah. our entertainment industry, uh, focusing on theme parks and then the medical community, things of that nature. But but it just, I, you know, Orlando is a fresh breath of fresh air for me because it feels like the world's at your front doorstep all the time. And it feels like right. Nashville's kind of becoming that as well with this continual influx. So well, that's amazing. Well, praise God for that, uh, for Church of the City in 10 years. I know you, every once in a while, I like it when you post the picture from, I think it was from either a gym or an old school building or something and y'all's first Easter gathering. And it's like yeah. a couple hundred people or something. And yeah. you, I think you borrowed our equipment from the, that lift tour back in 99. And no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> in fact, it wasn't that good. It wasn't that good. <laughs> but I love seeing that picture and then seeing all that God has done since then. Well, let's, let's talk about this project, man, and have a conversation around the idea for this project. Uh, you wrote a book called The Digital Fast. 40 days to detox your mind and reclaim what matters most. Um, I, I want to kind of start this way if we can. Let's, let's talk about the idea of fasting first. Let's not start with the negative. Let's start with this, this biblical discipline. Um, as a pastor, what, what role do you see that playing in the Christian life? And, and, and do we do it well? 
Well, I would say that fasting is probably the most neglected spiritual practice in the modern world. Um, Jesus talks quite a bit about fasting in the Sermon on the Mount. He talks about when you give, when you pray, when you fast. And it's largely about not parading your spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices in front of other people to try to get some sort of uh, pious religious credit. But fasting, particularly in the modern world, it may, it may have never been more important than it is now in a time where we simply appease our appetites when, whenever we want to comfort ourselves. Uh, our church takes the first 21 days of every year, and I know lots of churches do this, but our church takes the first 21 days of every new year for a season of prayer and fasting. And the truth is, Brent, as you know, fasting is uncomfortable. Um, but I don't know, you know why it's called fasting because time goes slow when you're not eating. But you realize how much of our lives is oriented around eating. We meet for breakfast. We have lunch meetings. We celebrate dinner for birthdays. It's like so much is around feasting and food. And to take a season where you intentionally pull back and abstain and say, God, I am hungry right now and I am reminded of my humanity. I am reminded that every breath and everything that I have comes from you. And I am deliberately going to pull back and be reminded of my need and reminded of the need of your presence. And, and, and in many ways, fasting is a very, very powerful thing. It's uncomfortable and it's supposed to be. It's, it, what, what happens is you, you, you kind of turn up the voice of God when you're fasting. Wow. And Jesus did it. Jesus fasted for 40 days in the wilderness before he started his ministry. There is something about fasting that often precedes something that God is going to send you or launch you into. And that was certainly the pattern of, of Jesus' ministry. And often, it's funny, often a lot of the things that happen in our church in the remaining uh, 11 and a half months are birthed in the first 21 days of just being still and setting time aside to be seeking God, seek first the kingdom, and to be abstaining from food, to really be asking God to speak. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, one, one of the things I've noticed in my own life, because I'm so sinful, is that when I fast, there's a detoxing process that happens in which I realize um, how much margin that there isn't for me to long deeply for God. In other words, it, it almost like puts a microscope on what I'm on, on my own inadequacies, on my own neglect, and how I just constantly fill the void with different things. And it really does refocus the trajectory of your of your vision for your life. And um, I, I hate to use this phrase because it sounds so secular, but it there is an element to self discovery when you fast, That's right. and it gives you the opportunity. That is absolutely true. I mean, we tend to cover over sadness mm-hmm. and comfort ourselves with food because it makes us feel better. You know, like there's a physiological response to eating, particularly eating uh, sweet things. And and we kind of medicate some of the stresses and the anxieties of our lives by covering it over with food. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So 
you know, obviously in the Bible, fasting is used for lots of different things. And there's, you know, I read one scholar said there's three different kinds of, if you want to give everything broad categories, there's a, you know, there's a, a you know, a, a full fast where you fast from water and food. Paul did that for three days. Um, there's a, a fast where you just fast from food. Then there's a partial fast. But it seems to me, as you look at kind of the Old and New Testament, that fasting kind of, it can be used for lots of different seasons of life and to address lots of different challenges that yes. that face us. And there's a there is to be Captain Obvious for a moment based on the title of the book. Uh, there is a a a tsunami size challenge that we all face on the daily um, with our devices. Um, and so that that really kind of I would imagine led to you wanting to do this project. So, so where did where did the idea of going, okay, I'm going to take a spiritual discipline that's been around for a long time, and I'm going to apply that to a certain problem? Yeah, so I was having lunch with a friend, and it was in November, and we were anticipating the 21-day fast. And, uh, and he, he asked me, well, what about, what about fasting from social media or technology or, or whatever? And I said, well, you know, like, purity... Of a, of a fast by biblical standards is about food. You know, it's, it's, it, it's not fasting from other different things in our lives. Um, so I don't want to dilute the, the historic practice because I think that there's something really powerful. But I think that if I say to people, um, also don't use your phone, I think that that is, it's going to dilute the whole thing. I think people aren't going to do it. They're not going to engage. And yet, the idea of the, the role that technology has taken in, in sort of overtaking our attention is a very, very serious problem as well. And, and, and for all the similar reasons that I just mentioned about food can cover over anxieties and fears. It can comfort us when we're afraid. In, in one sense, there is now something that has been introduced in our society that is doing something so similar and it's not food, it's phone. Yes. <laughs> and, and, and so now we, we tend to, we, we tend to numb ourselves from any sort of negative feeling by doom scrolling. And anytime you feel a little bit negative about something, generally what so many of us do is subconsciously reach for your phone, unlock it and start scrolling and looking at something that is going to, distract or entertain you. And in many ways, what it has done is it has removed the discretionary thought time of our lives. And instead of praying, instead of asking God to speak, instead of asking God, what am I supposed to pay attention to? We are filling our lives with trivial, just fast food content. And as, as, as most of us know, you might look at your phone for a noble reason. You want to check the time or someone sends you a text message, one of your kids and you open up and you look at it. And then you just like, go, almost involuntarily, let me just hit Instagram for a second right now. And let me just look at some reels here. That's interesting. These algorithms have been designed to exploit my weaknesses and the things that I'm interested in anyway. And so I'm just going to scroll for a while. And then all of a sudden you look up and 48 minutes have gone by and you don't feel great. No. You feel this low grade sense of shame 
and you feel like, what am I doing with my life? I'm, I'm looking at triviality at the sacrifice of things that are so much more important where I physically am. So I, I, I decided that I wanted to split these two experiences and have two very different things. And, and so we were going to have our 21 days of prayer and fasting, but then we also wanted to have a time where we would invite people to a church-wide digital fast. Now, to my surprise, Brent, this ended up being something that was so much more uh, effective than I could have imagined. If you ask someone, have you ever done a digital detox or ever done digital fast or taken time away from your phone? Most people will say no. And most people will say, but I've always wanted to. And people don't get around to it because doing it as an individual is really hard. Social scientists call the kind of problem that we're dealing with with digital technology a collective action problem. And what that means is that we all generally know that smartphones are having a detrimental impact on mental health and, and, and depression and people's overall, overall well-being. And yet no one wants to get off social media because you're going to get left out of everything. It's FOMO. You know, Our phones are basically the doorway to social life. And so none of us want to pull back because no one else is. But what is interesting is, is, is if a community does this together, if a small group, a family, a church, all says for a measured amount of time, we are all going to take a step back. It almost becomes a shared communal experience. It becomes a sport. And our church had a very, very positive experience of something that thousands of individuals would have loved to have done, but never got around to it until we all got around to it together. And we gave guidance on how to do it together. And it was one of the most powerful things that we have ever done as a church. Wow. You know, one of the things you mentioned that I, I think is pretty important and, and, and you know, I, the world breaks down into to Catholicism and Protestantism and, and Christendom. And, you know, the word Catholic, as you know, simply means universal. So before there was the Protestant church, there was just the church. And then, of course, we had the Protestant Reformation, in which we had this splinter group split off that has evolved and uh, snowballed into this thing where you and I are Protestants. And so, which, which primarily means that we subscribe to the priesthood of all believers. We have Catholic friends. We right. believe many of them are going to heaven with us. We're, it's not, a, it's yes. not throwing shade. It's just... One of the things that got lost in the Protestant Reformation moving forward is the communal aspect to fasting. The Catholic yes. Church does this well, whether it's we're going to yes. abstain from meat on this day, you know, or whatever it is. But they have done communal fasting well, and, and certainly hierarchy does play a role in that. This voice said to do it, so we're doing it. Um, yes. But we as Protestants have kind of made fasting and primarily, certainly in a Western, uh, uh, in our Western mindset, an individual thing. And That's so, right. and so yes. I think there's, there's something very powerful about going, no, we're doing this as a community, man. This is all of us. We're a family. We're doing this together. And I think it's powerful that it came is, from a pastor. The, the truth is, and, 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 and the, the Catholics do this. The truth is it's easier when you do it together. And, and when you are, like, like if, you're, if you're fasting from food and your friends are too, then no one's going, uh, we're having a birthday party, everyone come over. They're going, after our season of fasting together, 
we're then going to have a season of feasting together. Right. And, 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 and so there is this shared, there's, there's even shared suffering. Mm-hmm. You, you're hungry and you are, your faith is bolstered by other people who are also hungry, who are faithful to the spiritual practice. Yeah. You know, one of the things that you do in part one, and, and the book is broken up into three parts, folks, and, and part one really is focused on dissecting the problem. Part two, which is really the heart of the book, uh, and we're not going to dive too much into that other than to say here's what it offers is is a strategy, is helps, is devotionals. It's really a process that you can go through. And then part three, which I'm really glad you include part three because if you just end with the fast, no, how do I reengage? Part three is how I reengage. But particularly in part one, you did a phenomenal job, Darren, of, of bringing in the social sciences, which I'm a kind of a big fan of. And for our listeners, when, when, when you hear the phrase social sciences, and Darren quoted a social scientist or, or a, a phenomenon that social scientists are referring to, the social sciences really are just quantitative and qualitative research. Quantitative would be statistical analysis, and how do I get this percentage? Qualitative would be focused in on a phenomenon happening in a specific group in a specific time or in an individual in a specific group in a specific time. And so when we say the social sciences, we're talking about those two disciplines of research. Now, my whole purpose in mentioning that is it's the social sciences are incredibly helpful for us to diagnose modern day problems. And one of the things, Darren, that I want to commend you on is you did a phenomenal job of gleaning and diagnosing the problem through the social sciences while at the same time going, now the balm for that wound we're going to find in in the scriptures. So uh, let me ask you this. What are some of the consequences of the digital age we live in of – and what are some of the, the, the big kind of – what are a couple takeaways from studying all that research on the consequences that it's having? You talk about how it holds us hostage. What, what were some of the things that you discovered maybe that even surprised you about that? Some of the unintended secondary and third level consequences are really quite shocking. Um, digital technology has seeped its way into our lives. It didn't come in like a force, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the iPhone came out in June of uh, 2007, but it didn't have an app store, you know, like there was, you, you weren't, there was no social media, there were no games, there was, there was none of these other things that, you know, when the app store came in and there's now millions of different apps that you can put on your phone. Um, it started out very simple, but certainly the iPhone, it turns out in history is a before and after moment. And when you started having email on your phone and when you started having, uh, you know, texting and social media and, and all of this, the, the lines between working and personal life completely blurred. You're at work and you're getting messages uh, from your family. And when you're at home, you're getting messages from work. And it, it sort of creates this always on uh, stance which human beings were never meant to always be on. Uh, God designed us in rhythm. He designed us in, in working and then rest. And uh, when we're always on all the time, it produces a, a degree of exhaustion. Some of the most startling things that I have seen that I had just never thought of until I started studying this is things like this. Um, 
women, mo- young mothers who are nursing their children, right? And what, what, what is nursing a child, but it's boring, right? I mean, you, you, you're sitting there potentially for 30, 40 minutes, maybe an hour, you're rocking your child. And, and, and so it seems completely plausible that while you're feeding your child, you just start scrolling on your phone. Right. But you see, mothers and babies uh, experience this powerful bonding by staring in one another's eyes mm. and by speaking to one another and by, and, and, and by stroking and by, and, and by like just the, the intentional connection that a mother has with the, with, the, with the privilege of carrying a child and then feeding her child from, from, from her body. And there is this change now in history right. where young moms are feeding and they're, they're scrolling on their phones and they're missing all of this mm. connection that is supposed to be happening from a, from a mother to a child. Now, I, I actually shared that experience in church or shared that anecdote in church and uh, saw a bunch of moms in tears, honestly. Because they're not bad. No one's bad people. They're just like, no one's ever really exposed that before or shown that before. Yeah. The impact on children, on teenagers is, is, is extraordinary. There's a new book that is coming out. I'll plug another book that's coming out called The Anxious Generation. And it's coming out in March. And it's by uh, a social scientist by the name of uh, Dr. Jonathan Haidt. Mm-hmm. And, and he talks about the fact that in 2012, this is when the iPhone has been around for five years. It's now been popularized. It's meant, you know, you've upgraded your iPhone and you've given your old one to either your wife or someone or one of your kids, right? And, and so iPhones were starting to be a lot more, smartphones were a lot more widely adopted. And uh, Dr. Jonathan Haidt says that there was a movement, a noticeable shift in 2012, where children went from a play-based childhood to a phone-based childhood. Mm. And the impact of that is extraordinary because uh, children are experiencing the world through a small glowing rectangle and they are being stunted in social development. In, and, and so what you have is you, 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 know, you sort of go into a, into a space where there's a bunch of teenagers and they're all like have their heads buried in their phones. This is very, very unhealthy for developing just – Social uh, intelligence and social skills. Uh, there is a bunch of recent research that has been done now on like toddlers who have these big iPads and they have their faces buried in an iPad, and then it is literally stunting brain development. Wow! Because and it, and it is it is it is noticeably different. The research is noticeably different from a television to like an iPad, something that is that is inches from your face that you are interacting with is, is, is much more dangerous for the stunting brain development than even a television, which has been around for, for many, many years. Uh, I think parents' attention to their children, which, you know, I, I talk about a story in the book about when uh, I was going to watch my daughter play volleyball. And this is not even a particularly insightful story, honestly. No, but it's what I'm walking all experienced. Every That's parent. right. We've all experienced it. Yeah. And I, and I, and I, and I walk into the, to the, to the, uh, the gym and I look up on the bleachers and every single, like every single parent 
has their head buried in their phone. Mm. And you know what's going to happen. Their kids are playing, and at one point they get something over, they get something over the net, and they look up to see if their parent's watching, and they realize that their parent is has their head buried in their phone. And and this is not to villainize parents. I've done that, man. This yeah. is not villainizing parents. But w- what tends to happen is some, we get a buzz from our phone and we look at it and, you know, someone's asking, you know, what gym are you in or what time will you be home or something that's kind of important, right? But then it's a wormhole of pulling you in to all of these other things that are distracting you. And the, the way that we encourage people to start to think about interacting with their phone, particularly in a digital fast, is to look at every app on your phone through the lens of, is this a distraction or is this a utility? Mm. Because there are so many things that you use your phone for that are utilities that don't cause you to doom scroll when you pull up at the lights, right? So uh, distractions are things like social media and games and email and things that are going to be like this wormhole of taking your attention. Uh, Utilities are things like, you know, texting and calling. And if you use your phone to open your garage door or or check in at the airport, like no one's pulling out the American Airlines app and then just like scrolling on it for hours. You know what I mean? So there are, it's not that it's all bad. It's just that we've got to be thinking a little bit more intelligently a little more sophistication with the way that we interact with these smartphones yeah and and you know it's also important to recognize pastor that we're in a phenomenon and we yes there's a lot of research in this book and it's incredibly helpful but the truth is we still don't know the long-term effects of some of this stuff like this is a historical phenomenon that we know that we're in that can't be studied to completion because we're in the middle of it and so I think that just that idea should cause us to be uh, a little cautious. Uh, I, I don't want to go too much down a rabbit trail, but you're a parent, I'm a parent, and we both talk to a lot of parents. Um, one of the things that we've done in our home is we've asked, okay, what is necessary versus what is desirable? Um, because I want my kids playing outside. You know what I mean? I, yes. I yeah. want my kids being present in a moment. I want so, – so we've ha- have some standards and some guidelines. What encouragement would you give to a parent uh, – forgive me, this is a little bit off, off script, but about – like if a parent's listening to this and goes, like, man, I know. I get it. And I know a fast is helpful. Um, but even before that, w- when, how – should I let my child have that? Is, is there some encouragement or direction, wisdom you give in relationship to that question? Yeah, this is such an important conversation. So I have three teenage daughters, and so I am in this. And I'll tell you, I've got some things right, and I've got some things wrong. And I can clearly see where I got some things wrong now. i tell you the number one thing that I got wrong, and that is something I alluded to earlier, and that is when... Uh, my eldest daughter turned, I think, about 14, um, and she had a little bit more autonomy. You know, she was at her school, and, and we just wanted to be able to stay in touch with her. Mm-hmm. And so we wanted to give her a phone so that we could, we could stay in touch. And so what I did is I gave her an old iPhone that I had lying around in my drawer, yeah. and I wish I had not done that. Because mm-hmm. I'm giving it's, – it's going from 
zero to a thousand miles an hour. You know what I mean? Like, like these, these smartphones are the most powerful computer and, and give access to everything. Now, I do have it locked down. And, and, I, and I mean that uh, Apple has a bunch of tools, screen time and parental controls and all of that. And I have taken the time to really learn how to optimize those. And so I do have it locked down. But if I had my time over again, the first device that I gave my children would not be a smartphone, even a locked down smartphone. It would be a flip phone or a a dumb phone or a, a phone that doesn't access the internet, a phone that can text and call. The reality is that if a kid is 13, 14, 15, whatever, and it's the first device that they get, it's still going to be exciting and it's still going to be a novelty. It's just that you're letting the rope out a little more carefully. So if you are a parent and your kids are a little bit younger, mine are 13, 14 and uh, 13, 15 and 17. Um, if you, if you have not yet given your kids a device, please do not give them a smartphone as step one. Right. Uh, the best social science research today is saying that you should not give a smartphone until a child is in high school. The second thing is that you should not give a child social media until they are 16. No social media until 16. The fourth, th- uh, the third thing is that you should be encouraging more unsupervised play. This is, this is the research of Dr. Jo- uh, Dr. Jonathan Hyatt. More unsupervised play. What that means is instead of hovering around your children and all of that and wondering, you know, are they going to get abducted or whatever, like let them play. And if they have conflict, let them work conflict out with one another rather than a parent stepping in and saying, okay, you stand up over here, you over here, what did you say? Like let them develop those skills. The fourth thing, which he's calling social norms, is uh, no phones in schools. Mm. Let kids have a break for eight hours a day and have no phones in schools. Now, Dr. Hyde's idea is that if even half of society would adopt this, that would that would be all you would need for parents who are coming into this to be like, well, half the class has got a phone and the other half doesn't. It makes it a lot more plausible to say to your kid, no, you're not going to have a phone until you're 16. Yeah. But what, what our kids say to us is, I'm the only one that is not on this text thread or I'm the only one that is not on Instagram or I'm the only one that is not on Snapchat. And as a parent, you don't want your kid to be, to be left out. You you know, like you, you, you're teaching them to be socially intelligent and integrated in society. We want them to be able to have friends and to develop those skills. None of us want our kid to be, to be isolated and left out, but this continues to perpetuate. Because when your kid says, my child is the only, I'm the only one that doesn't have this. And you're like, gosh, I I best, I I guess I should get you a phone. And that is how this uh, collective action problem continues. Yeah, but you said the only one left out. But one of the things you write about in the book that I appreciate in diagnosing the problem is that actually all these devices and how they are used has created an epidemic of loneliness. So the only one left out, but by... By opting in, it's a gateway to loneliness. Uh, one of the things that we, right. we did, and I can't take credit for it, Christina did this, when Gabe was 12, and my son's now 18, but when Gabe was 12, he, he was the only kid in the class that didn't have one. 
And I had that same feeling. And I went, Chris, we got to give him something. Like, we don't want, I don't want my kid to be the guy left out. And she goes, nah, you know, I got, let's, here's a better idea. And I don't know where she got it from. She may have come up with it on her own. I don't know. But she said, why don't we tell him, like, hey, we're going to give you the amount of money it would cost for an iPhone into an account every month. And when you turn 16, you get all that. You put towards a car or whatever, you know. And so I came to Gabe and I went, hey, let, let's make a deal, you know, and he, he jumped on it. And so I said, when everybody goes, why don't you got one? You're the only one. I go, I'm getting paid. And so right. he turned 16. He had forgotten about it. Uh, and as he turned 16, he opens a present and it's a box full of cash. And it. Uh, it was great, man. He held the cash up and Love he, that. I remember he literally goes, it was worth it, you know, in that moment. <laughs> so. Delay gratification. That's a great, a great lesson to learn. Yes, sir. Well, let, let's talk then about, okay, so we you're going to apply a fast to our devices. Um, and let, talk to me a little bit about what that looks like. And then on the other side of that, what are the benefits of, of doing that? Because that really is the heart of the book is, okay, here's the problem. And by the way, before we go any further, at the very beginning of the book, and Darren, I think this is vitally important, there is an assessment tool that every individual, so even though it's a communal thing, you get to start by looking in the mirror at yourself. There's this great assessment tool and then, the, then, then diagnosing the problem really well. But, but what benefits do you get from applying a FAST to our digital devices? So what we're asking people to do is to either use a dumb phone for 40 days or to dumb down your smartphone. And as I was talking to earlier, um, we're encouraging people to remove apps that are distractions. Um, and, and, and you know what they are, the ones that, that cause you just to be looking at your phone, news apps and all of these kind of things. So there's two ways that you can remove your apps. You can delete them or you can go into on an iPhone, you can go into screen time and then you can actually make those apps disappear, which is the way I do it. So I don't actually delete anything. I just remove them. And so none of these apps are on my phone. I'm not tempted by them. I don't, I, I remove Safari from my phone. I'm not, so there's, there's really nothing particularly interesting unless I maybe want to scroll through photographs or something. Yeah. There's nothing particularly interesting on my phone. So it, we're encouraging people to do that. The, the first option is to, is to do that, make your smartphone dumb or use a dumb phone and then um, remove any other screens from, from the, the 40 days. Don't watch TV, like unplug your TVs, all of that kind of stuff, right? And not everyone does that. Um, the modified version of it is that you can still watch TV. Maybe you modify how much you watch TV, but you certainly, you certainly are dumbing down your smartphone. Mm -hmm. Now, what happens is, and, and we move through uh, uh, four 10-day movements in the 40 days. The first 10 days is detach. So you're detaching from all of this scrolling and content and information. The second 10 days is discover. You discover all these things about yourself. It's really interesting. You discover like when I am anxious, I want to scroll on Instagram. When I'm afraid of something, I open up Snapchat or Facebook or I read the news and I just, I just read headlines or something. You discover different things about your proclivity to just numb out on your phone. 
The third 10-day period is delight because you get to this point where you're like, oh, this is a better life. I remember, I remember, you know, 25, 28 days into a digital fast last year, I stopped carrying my phone around when I was at my house. You know, I, I, I had, I'd become that guy where it was just always in my back pocket, no matter, you know, if I'm wearing my PJs, I grab it and I'm walking around with it. It's just with me all the time. And I realized that I don't need to do that anymore. Yeah. And so I put it in a drawer and I closed the drawer and I remember my daughter uh, invited me to come outside and watch her bounce on the trampoline. And I went outside and the sky was blue and it was 71 degrees and I could hear the birds and I could feel the, the blades of grass under my feet. And I was watching my daughter bounce and she was squealing and laughing. And I thought, Brent, this is a better life. Yeah. Amen. This is a better life. And, and, and so I delighted in being off of these toxic little screens. So that's the third movement. The fourth movement is determined. And this is the idea of like, I need to come up with a plan that when I am re-entering the digital world, it's going to be on my terms and it's going to be on the things that I want to do. The analogy that I use is uh, uh, Marie Kondo, you know, the, the one that, that talks about uh, organizing your, your wardrobe and your closet and all of that kind of stuff. And, and she encourages you to grab every item of clothing and ask yourself, does this spark joy in me or not? And if it doesn't, she says, throw it away. I suggest you do the same thing with your apps. Yeah. Like, am I going to bring Instagram back onto my phone? Does it spark joy? Yeah. I'm not even suggesting you never go on Instagram anymore. What I'm saying is maybe it's not on your phone. Mm. And if you want to engage on Instagram, you do that on your desktop computer or you do it on an iPad that's not with you all the time. I'm not suggesting you go off social media for the rest of your life. I'm suggesting that you take these different things and you put them in a healthy place so that your relationship with them is a healthy relationship rather than you pull up at the stoplights and you're waiting and you just start looking on your phone. You start checking your email. Mm. Uh, checking your email 60 times a day is not a healthy thing to yeah. do. And we all know that. Yeah. And yet we do it. Yeah. So, and, and by the way, those four 10-day periods, you've written devotionals to go along with each of those yeah. days. So, there's this, this uh, ability to experience Scripture. And, and that's what I love about this is you start with this self-assessment tool. We go big on the problem, but then we come really small on, even though you're doing this in the context of the community, on you personally experiencing the Scriptures as you go through this 40-day fast. So it's, uh, it's a powerful strategy slash, you know, kind of a, approach to it. Let, let me ask you a, a question that, you know, you could take this any different direction you want to, Pastor, but, um, you know, I oftentimes teach our students that our focus will determine our formation. And so you've, you, you got this 40-day focus you got this ability to create a sense of margin to to be present like you were talking about with your daughter on the trampoline to experience a, a deeper sense of longing for God. You know, C.S. Lewis writes about a type of longing that you only experience a handful of times in your life. Um, and I wonder if we are not willing to do something like this, if there's not going to be any margin 
to experience the deepest sense of longing a human being can in their life. And, and so if your focus determines your formation and you're creating this margin to be present and to have a deeper experience, um, what, are, what are some things that you, you hope in people's lives or maybe you've seen in your church or your own life, what's been redeemed and been restored as a result of going through this fast? So there's, there's three relationships that tend to be drastically affected by being addicted to technology. The first is your relationship with yourself. Mm. You tend to be completely unaware of how you're feeling, how you're doing, because we cover up all of our feelings and our emotions with our devices. And so you, you have this new self-awareness when you are putting this down. Uh, the second relationship is your relationship with other people, your family, primarily if you're married and you have children or you, the people that you live around do life with. It's amazing how much we have adopted these terribly inappropriate social cues. It, it seems unbelievable that you could be having a conversation with someone and while you're talking, they their phone buzzes and they just pick it up without feeling any sense of social shame at all. And they start just checking their phone. You just want to be like, Hey, 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 over here, I'm talking. Yeah. There's never been a time in history where, where you could be so rude to someone. And yet we've done that. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I, I talked about impact on, you know, sort of parents and kids. And one of the things that I, I say, you know, cause, cause us parents, like to say, yeah, this is a real problem with our kids, you know, but it's a real problem with us. Yes. And, and we got to fix ourselves before we start like turning on our kids and saying, you've got a real problem with this. So it, it impacts our relationship with one another. And then of course it impacts our relationship with God. When we don't have stillness, when we don't turn down the noise of the world and really ask God to make his presence known to to, to speak to us, then we, we all but rid our lives from the presence of God yeah. and, 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 and the way that we interact with God and the way that we hear from God and the way that we pray, it has drastically reduced attention span. I, have, I talk about that in the book about, about people's measured attention spans, but that impacts people's ability to be able to pray without their mind being distracted. It impacts their ability to read God's word, to study God's word, to be in God's word. Um, attention spans have been dr drastically reduced. So it doesn't happen immediately, but over the course of the 40 days, you detach, you discover, you begin to delight, particularly in the third time, the, the third movement of delight. You begin to rediscover some of the most primal human experiences of being alone with yourself. And, and discovering how you're really doing, being alone with other people and being fully present, actively listening, eye contact, empathy, and then listening to the voice of God. The, the, the digital fast is not just a call to put down something. It's a call to take up something. It's a call to like take up God's word, prioritize God's word and God's voice in your life over 40 days. Ask him, what do you want to say to me over this 40-day period? And we have found in our church this shared experience of people going on this journey together. 
the long-term implications have been really surprising. It ends up being not just a 40-day fast. There are certain things that people never bring back. And, and I'm one of those. I did not put social media back on my phone. Wow. And I didn't want to. Wow. Now, it's not that I'm not ever on social media. I just don't have it on my phone. I can go on, on an iPad. I can go on on a, on a laptop or a desktop or whatever. Stay up with things that way. It's just not with me all the time. And for me, that has been a long-term impact of the fast. Yeah. And for me, I'm going, putting social media back on my phone, does that spark joy? Turns out it doesn't. Yeah. And my life is better without it being in my pocket all the time. So if I, if I may be Captain Obvious for a moment, um, what could be redeemed and restored is the entirety of one's future. <laughs> Is, 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 uh, there's this maybe alternate universe where there's a you that's much healthier, uh, in, in, on a personal level, on a social level, and in your relationship with God. And that alternate you is available, but not unless you're willing to go through this. So it could restore and redeem, uh, or redeem and restore, excuse me, the entirety of one's future. I, I got a, a kind of a, a question that I, I, I want to ask that I know is you're going <clears> to, <throat> have to wrestle with once this book comes out. And that is that there's going to be books are sold individually as well as people place bulk orders. Okay. But let's say, let's say a young lady, young man in their early mid twenties picks this book up. They see somebody post about it or they heard somebody talk about it and they picked it up and they read it. And maybe they go, I'm going to do this, but I don't want to do this alone. What would you say to the individual that goes, this is really needed, but I don't have a church behind me. I don't have a family with me to do this. I don't have a group. What would you say to that individual? How would they go about um, maybe looking for that community so that it's a shared experience? Well, I would most certainly encourage people to cooperate with the natural networks that they do life in. And so uh, if you are particularly connected to your neighbors, invite your neighbors to do this. If you are particularly connected with the other parents of your kids, then invite them to do this. If it's a sports team, um, if it is a school, if you're on a school board, uh, parent school board, uh, in, in, invite them to, to do it as well. Certainly, you could say to your family, what would it look like for us to try this? I was surprised, Brent, that my children, my teenage girls and their friends were open to doing this. They were, they were less resistant. And, and the reason is that they are also aware that they have a problem with this. Mm -hmm. Now, it's, it's, it's like eating junk food all the time, you know? You, you, you kind of like, man, I want junk food and I feel awful afterwards. And, and, and having an unhealthy relationship with digital devices, you, you want to appease that appetite and you feel terrible afterwards. Yeah. And, and the really, really powerful thing, particularly for teenagers, and, and the research shows um, Dr. Gene Twenge has done a ton of research on this, and um, the, the number one most at-risk group of anyone in society is teenage girls. Wow. And uh, teenage girls in, in uh, depression, teenage girls in just mental health, suicide, cutting, I mean, the, the research is back and it is undeniable that there were suspicions for a while. It is now, it is now absolutely proven 
boys are not as bad as girls, but they are also, it's, it's particularly toxic for boys. But, but teenage girls, when they are in an era and a season of their life where they're comparing themselves with one another, um, <clears throat> kids can be so cruel to one another on social media or on text threads. And um, what I have seen is rather than someone doing it on their own, and someone can do it on their own, and people have had had some success at that. But if you do it with a network, if you do it with a community, the big surprise is that lots of people want to do this. They're looking for someone to lead and to instigate and to do it. And you get a lot of people who will come along. So we've created a way to uh, offer this uh, for bulk buying um churches can buy at up to 60 percent off we want to make it as a as as cheap and as available as we possibly can where some pastors or church leaders may be interested in in buying one for everyone mm-hmm. and they could then sell them in the lobby if they wanted to they can give them away they could make it a suggested donation but but everyone would go on the same journey using this resource at the same time and uh, it's much more effective when people do that. Is that what's available on thedigitalfast.com? Correct. Yes. Thedigitalfast.com has uh, connections, uh, links to be able to buy it individually and then also buy it in bulk as well. Well, Darren, this is uh, Dr. Whitehead, Pastor Darren, and friend. This is, this is incredibly helpful. Thank you. I want to say thank you for writing it. I had to read it quickly, so I haven't I haven't been able to go through the forty days yet. Uh, but I I read it uh, and then I I uh, uh, forwarded it to my wife, and I know that we're we're going to look at this for our family uh, for sure. And then, um, but I can't tell you it's it's almost like I'll say this as we wrap up. You mentioned this about both parents and kids. All everybody goes. There's a problem. I just don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I don't want to be the one to go first. I'd be the only one. It's also like but I also need a plan to do it. And right. what you've done is you've given us a resource that is a plan that uh, it's not paint by number. It allows it to be very personal, but it does walk us through from the very beginning to re-engagement. And uh, so I applaud you for that effort, my friend. So thank you for writing this. Thank you. And we want to encourage people to do this for the season of Lent. And mm-hmm. in 2024, Lent begins on February 14th. Lent, the season changes depending on on Easter, where Easter falls. Easter falls very early this year. And so February 14 is Ash Wednesday. It's the first day of Lent. And historically, the church uh, uh, has said, you know, it, within the liturgical calendar, you know, I'm going to take the 40 days that are leading up to Easter and, and, and give up something. Um, sometimes they give up food, uh, have a time of prayer and, and, and repentance. Uh, try to serve the poor. This has been the season of Lent, and and we're encouraging people uh, in in the season of Lent that you would do a digital fast. And um, we're going to have thousands of people in our church who are going to participate, and we want to invite churches all over America and all over the world to join us for a digital fast for the season of Lent. Well, I pray that they do. When does the book release? The book releases on January 30th. 30th. And so if you pre-order it now... Uh, or if you're listening to this and, and January 30th has already passed, there's still time. And then I would encourage you that if, you, if you're listening to this and it's past February 14th, don't go, well, ah, well, there you go. No, it, it's a great idea. Lent's a great tradition. 
but it still works if you do it past Lent. <laughs> and That's right. That's right. Darren, thank you so much for hanging out with us today. Brent, so good to be with you. I love you dearly. Thanks for having me on. Love you, my friend. Until we meet again, guys, wander well and shine like stars.